if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter. We're going to read most of it, not all of it. Now, as uh, you all heard, today is our 20th anniversary, right? It's, it's our birthday. Now, some of you love birthdays, okay? You know who you are. You slightly disgust me. Now, I don't like birthdays because I have a twin brother. And part of that, okay, see, but part of it is I always had to share my birthday, right? And, and honestly, we'd have a birthday party and friends would come and they decided that it would be wonderful to just bring one gift as if to say, hey, here's a gift and a fight all in one, all right? No, birthdays. Some of you love it. We're celebrating one of sorts this morning, but but really, this text today, it's a birthday party, okay? And birthday parties, when you just think of it, when you think of like a child's birthday or even your own, birthday parties, they're really, really predictable. So first, you, you figure out who you want to invite to the birthday party, right? And you send out the invitations. That's kind of stage one. That's the first thing you do. Then you go to the, you know, the Dollar Tree, you go to the store and you get all the goodies, right? You, you, you bake the cake, you get the goodie baskets, you get the pinata. My, my wife makes this beautiful balloon arch. Get it all ready, all the preparation for it. That's stage two. And then there's stage three, which is the party itself. Well, our text this morning actually kind of rolls out in those three stages, but there's a twist to it. It's in a slightly different order. Instead, we have the preparation, you know, getting the balloons, all, all the various things that God's people need for this celebration, this party, this occasion, this birthday party. And then they have the celebration. And as, as the text unfolds, actually the third kind of stage is that the invitations are sent out for next year. Which sort of sets up a question for us all, which I'm going to ask in a moment. But, but before I ask, I, I, I just wonder... Do you remember as a kid, or maybe recently as an adult, do you remember that feeling you got when you realized you didn't get that invitation to that birthday party or that party that you really wanted to go to? You remember that feeling? Right? You remember that feeling where you walked up to a group of people and they were talking and they just got that eerily quiet, right? That shh, shh, shh. You know, and you know deep down They're not talking about you, but they're trying to politely say, hey, we're talking about something that they're excluded from. It's sad. It's hard, right? Even if you're not the the jealous type, we all get a little jealous when we're not invited to that party we really wanted to go to. So how do you know if you're going to make the list? Well, this morning... As God's people are preparing for a party, getting all the goodie bag ready, all the different elements, and then they celebrate the party, the exodus, which is a constitution of God's people, that they have a new identity as God's people delivered from Egypt. It ends with invitation, the invitations for next year's party going out. And so the sort of haunting question for us this morning 
is this. If God was going to have a birthday party for his sons and daughters, how would you know when the invitations are sent from heaven, how would you know if you would be invited? How would you know if you'd be on the list? The big idea, and it works in three parts, and it should be behind me, is this. The exodus is the celebration of God's freedom, a celebration of freedom for God's people. And we'll break it down into those three parts, but I want to just expand it so you get where I'm going, right? So first, we're going to look at the the preparation for the celebration. Then second, we're going to look at the freedom that comes through this celebration, And then third, we're going to see far from being uh, exclusive, actually this meal, it's really inclusive. And so we're going to look at the inclusive nature of this celebration. So turn with me to, to Exodus 12. We're going to look at the first 13 verses to start. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can... According to what each can you shall... Oh, I just butchered that. We're going to try this one more time. According to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of the raw or boil, do not eat any of it raw or boiled it in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of its remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We'll stop there. Now, you've sort of heard uh, the phrase to the victors, go the spoils. Well, to 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 the victors goes the spoils of a celebration, Right? When a nation wins a victory, they throw a party. Just think of the 4th of July, right? That's a party celebrating uh, its victory over England. Without that victory, no 4th of July, no party. 
And so right here, God says that he's going to bring his people out of Egypt. He's going to deliver them through these mighty acts, this last mighty act. And as a result of all of this, when this 10th plague falls, it's going to be a new beginning for God's people. It's going to be a birthday. Look there in verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months, right? This is, this is Genesis 1 language, right? As in Genesis 1, when God, you know, created all, in the beginning God created. And so now God's saying, yes, in the beginning, I'm, I'm doing this new work, this new creation of work. But it's not creating the universes and the galaxies. It's creating a people. That same language is flowing through this. God's throwing a birthday party here. And he's saying, we're going to do this every year to remember what I've done for you. That, that's sort of Passover. It's, it's, a, it's a birthday party of, uh, in a sense. It's, it marks off when God constituted Israel as his people. And we see that in verse 14. We, we, we didn't read it, but we see this, that, that after uh, 1 to 13, which is sort of all the, the, the goodie bags of the party, like everything that they needed to do, and we'll look at it in a second. But then in 14 through 20, it's explaining this party that they would do every year. And then in verses 21 to the end of 28, it's Moses telling his people, okay, we got to get it all ready. We got to prepare. We got to go to the Dollar Tree. But there in verse 14, it, you see this language of celebration. Verse 14 says, this shall be a day of a memorial for you. And then go down to verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, observe the day throughout your generation. So, so this Passover was actually part of a bigger feast than the feast of unleavened bread, which is a, a whole week, which then would culminate in the Passover. And then if you look down in verse 26, you've got this like sort of catechistic conversation. When your children say to you, I mean, what does this mean, right? The important thing is that they didn't want this celebration, this birthday party to get lost. So when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, this holiday, this, this, this week of festivities? Well, you shall say to them, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Well, like all parties, like all celebrations, before you get started, before you throw the party, before you experience the party, you got to get the, the, the sort of gifts ready. You got to get all the details right. You got to get all the streamers ready. And that really is what's going on in verses 3 through 13, right? Every detail is spelled out, right? God says, this is exactly what you need to do in preparation for the party. So let's look at these details. Verse 3. God's people were to sacrifice a lamb for every household. Uh, Something would die. That's basically what God is saying. It's either going to be a lamb or it's going to be a child. And so a lamb would be chosen by either, either from a goat or a sheep. Regardless, it had to be a year old, had to be without blemishes, without defect. No no outward kind of, uh, you know, blemishes. 
And in one sense, what this is saying is that this substitute, this, this lamb, it's going to be costly, right? I mean, this is not like, you know, getting something that w- was really cheap. This lamb, this is, this is your pet in one sense. This is the most expensive thing you own. It would be an expensive sacrifice. And by its outward beauty, it would symbolize, it would represent the inward purity necessary for this sacrifice. Next came the killing of the lamb. And did you notice that all the lambs would be killed at the same time, right? This is not just individuals saying, oh, I individually, no, no, no. This is a communal event. This is the church, the assembly gathering together, doing this. It's a, it's a unifying act. They did it at the twilight on the 14th day of the month. And then they would take that blood, the blood of the sacrificed lamb, and with a branch, they would then, they would then paint it on the outside door of their front door. Now, why the doors? I mean, and, and why, why, why this sort of uh, kind of street theater? Like, why is, isn't it enough just to just sacrifice this lamb? Why paint the outside doors with blood? Verse 13 really says it, right? That the reason is, is that the blood was going to be a sign. And notice who would see that sign. God and Egypt. It was a sign of judgment. It was a sign that, that anyone outside, anyone who could see that blood, would be judged. Only those inside the house would be spared. Safety only came inside the house. So in one sense, this, this, this blood painted on the doors, it's a warning of judgment. It's a warning of judgment for anyone who's outside of the household of God. Well, after putting the blood on the door, th- then they have to eat, right? And it's really particular, right? You, you can't boil it. You got to roast it. And along with it, you, you had unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, why unleavened bread, right? Bread that doesn't have yeast, bread that doesn't have time to kind of uh, rise. Well, because it wasn't just about the bread. It's what the bread represented. It was like a a piece um, on a stage. It was supposed to point to a spiritual reality, which was they better be ready. At any moment, they're gone. So prepare. You don't even have time for the bread to rise. But also, look at their table manners, right? This is sort of odd, right? I mean, my, my mom went to manners school. And so all growing up, she would kind of rebuke us for our poor table manners. And these are some really bad table manners, aren't they? Right? They, they eat with their uh, belts fastened, their staff in their hands, sandals on their feet. It's as if they're saying they are eating as the car is, you know, on in the driveway. Some of you know what it's like on Thanksgiving when, you know, you got this big meal. And, and the whole point of that big meal is that you want to be comfortable. So, so you loosen the belt a little bit to make room. Or you put on those sweatpants. You put on the slippers. You get as comfortable as possible. Then you, you eat and you get firsts and seconds. And, and after every bite, you, you, you go, mmm, right? Everyone has an uncle during Thanksgiving that after every bite says, mmm, right? It's slightly annoying. If you don't know who that person is, it's probably because that's you. 
It's not like that meal. It's not like our Thanksgiving Day meals, is it, right? This is a meal that was going to be fast. You had to have your feet on, your belt ready, your staff ready. You had to have everything ready because at any moment, you're scarfing this food down because at any moment, it's time to go. That's the elements, isn't it? Those are the sort of party favors. Those are the things that they had to do in preparation for this exodus. Now, what's the point of it all? What's the meaning? Well, it's simple, right? You don't have to have a PhD in order to understand that the simple meaning of what's going on here. And the simple meaning is that God is going to spare his people and deliver his sons and daughters through a substitute. That's the clearest point, right? They need a substitute in order to be delivered. You see, Egypt wasn't judged because they were bad and Israel was good. That's not the point. The point is not Egypt is really corrupt and evil and Israel is pure. No, that's not the point either. The point is that if anyone is going to be spared, they need a substitute. They need someone to to stand in their place. This celebration, it's, it's a reminder that salvation comes, is wrought, through substitution. Now, this is the essential story of the Bible, isn't it? Right? It's sort of the core message of the Bible that salvation only comes through a substitute. Death is the, the right and necessary judgment for sin. And so generation after generation, they needed a substitute so that they too wouldn't be judged. But, but you might think, I mean, how could an animal ever be a substitute for a human, right? I mean, I love my dog. I know I joke about it, but I like to love my little golden doodle, okay? But, if my, but, but really, it would not be much of a sacrifice to choose dog or child. So, so they're not the same thing. So how in the world could an animal take the place of a human? Well, in many ways, this is one of the tensions of the Bible that over time just kind of ratchets up. It just keeps building and building and building and building. And in many ways, in the ultimate way, it finds its resolution in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? God devised the ultimate plan for salvation through substitution. You you see, the Passover, it's merely a picture of this ultimate reality that a lamb was just sort of a, Uh, a small reminder that they needed something more glorious in order for them to find deliverance and salvation. I mean, it's no wonder that when Jesus comes on the scene, when he starts his ministry, John the the Baptist, right before he's going to baptize him, what does he say? He, he, He kind of announces Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus did that very thing. God's son died. His blood was shed so that God's wrath would be appeased. But but that's not the only step. Actually, and this is going to sound almost heretical, but it's, it's not. Just stick with me. It's not enough for Jesus to die. We need one more step. Salvation doesn't just come because the ultimate substitute in God's son died. Actually, his death must be applied. So just think about the Passover. 
Just think about if God's people said, you know, you know, two, uh, two men are sitting there and they're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do everything. We're going to get the lamb, our favorite lamb without blemish. And we're going to kill it. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to eat it. You know, I'm not going to undo the belt. I'm going to have my staff. I'm going to do everything. I'm just not going to smear the blood on the door. Now, this is a rhetorical question, but there is a right and a wrong answer. The question is, if you did everything right, everything except that one thing, would have they been spared? Well, the answer is no. Because it wasn't enough just for that lamb to be sacrificed. It also needed to be applied. Applied to the houses of these uh, Israelites. And that act, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. And so when we think about, you know, standing on this side of the cross, well, it's not enough just that Christ died. Christ's blood, his life, it needs to be applied to our life. So in the Exodus, that blood was applied to the doors, but that was an act of faith, believing that God and his promises were true. And nothing has changed, right? We don't put blood on doors. That'd be weird. Don't do that. Creepy, even though Halloween is coming up. No, but we do in faith apply Christ's blood to ourselves. We look to the Lamb of God in faith. We embrace his life, his death, his resurrection. And we say, that is where I can find protection and provision. Right? In the same way that Israel found protection and provision in their house because they applied that lamb's blood, so we can find protection and provision in the household of God because Christ has died. Our sin did that. Our hands did that. And in faith, we apply his sacrifice to our lives. We say, I can't do it. My behavior isn't good enough. I can't be morally or ethically good enough, but I can in faith believe that Christ is the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you guys see why they were to celebrate this every year? To mark it off, right? To put a a big red circle around it. To, To just stop, take some time off and rest and process. The Exodus it was a monumental moment in the history of God's people. It was meant for them to reflect on the past so that they might worship in the present, which is what happens in verse 27, the end of this section, right? After Moses tells them this is exactly what we're going to do, they worshiped God. Now, how does the Passover relate to us? Well, the Passover was, for the Old Testament people of God, Really, what communion is to the New Testament people of God? Have you ever wondered why we don't celebrate Passover? Instead, we we monthly celebrate communion. We take bread and wine and we celebrate not, not our deliverance from the Egyptians. We celebrate a greater deliverance, don't we? We celebrate and meditate on a greater deliverer, a better lamb, Yes, the backdrop of communion is the Passover. That's sort of the historic backdrop. There's an echo of the Passover even in communion. But in many ways, communion, it's fulfilled 
everything that the Passover was and its purpose. And so when we read the accounts of Jesus in the Last Supper, when he sort of instituted communion, it's interesting that all of the Passover elements are there, right? They're all there when you read them. But there's one missing. There's one thing missing, probably the most important thing missing on the table, and it is the lamb. And that's because there was no need for a lamb on the table because there was a lamb reclining with his disciples. Jesus himself is the lamb of God. And so communion in one sense is like a birthday party. It's a reminder of all that God has done in our life in delivering us from sin. And just like the Passover, which binds the people together because of that shared identity, that's what communion does. That's why we take it together, right? That's why you could never just have communion by yourself in that sense. It, it voids the beauty of it. No, no, no. Communion is about us together, being brought together through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the first part. That's the sort of details about this celebration, right? That's what verses 1 to 20 is all about. But now, second, and these are going to go faster. Let, let, let's look at this freedom that this celebration brought. Let, let's look at this freedom that God brings God's people out of. This is the story of the Exodus starting in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of all the livestock, right? From greatest to least and everyone in between. And Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and, uh, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver, gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of Egypt so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went up out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out to the land of Egypt, so that the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. We'll stop there. So here in verse 29, we have the last of the ten plagues, and it drops. It falls. The last and final And worse, plague falls. 
And as a result, we, we, we read, you notice that they just flee in haste, right? They flee having plundered the Egyptians. And they leave from Ramses to Sukkoth, right? They, they leave Egypt. And notice they don't leave sort of like dogs. They don't leave like on their knees. I mean, they leave marching out the front door of Egypt, right? God's people have been exalted in this exodus. And Egypt has been humiliated. We see there in verse 37 that there's a great number who left, right? 600,000 men beside women and children. They leave with their goods, their possessions, livestock, pockets full of jewelry and bread. And they march out of town, right? It's, it really is a beautiful imagery of blessing, isn't it? Pilgrims marching towards God and his promises. But, but one thing that's interesting here, one thing that as the sort of narrative builds its way up, as it comes to its crescendo in this last plague, did you notice how short it talks about the 10th plague? I mean, go, go ahead and count them. It's, if my, I mean, no math major, that's three verses. And then if you just quickly look back at uh, the, all of the rest of the plagues, you'll notice that actually this is the shortest description of any of the plagues. You'd think that this would be one of the greatest, right? As it's all building, and yet it's as if the author Moses is saying, I don't even need to describe it. This is a foregone conclusion. God's promises have come to bear. And really, when you look at verses 40 to 42, but it runs throughout this entire section, right? It keeps pointing back to God said he did. God said he did. God said he did. He said that you'd plunder. He said that you'd have favor. You had favor. You had do it, right? He said that you'd come out and now you're out. It's, it's this, this constant theme of God's promises being fulfilled in this exodus. They were God's people. And now, as they leave, they needed to act like God's people. I I, I kind of briefly went through it. I read it. But did you notice that they actually have unleavened bread in their pockets? It says it twice. Now, I don't think that's like granola bars, right, for the the march. Right? I'm sure that, you know, they they had it because that's all they had. But all these elements, right, all these goodies, like they, they point to something greater. And so, what this unleavened bread, it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to the reality that they're freed. They are God's people. God determined it. It was his choice that fell, that their, this favor fell on them. Start acting like it, right? It's how the New Testament interprets the Passover. You ever noticed? It's interesting, but Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, um, Paul picks up on this imagery of unleavened bread and the Passover and applies it to the church in Corinth. Now, if you remember, and I preached that, um, that book years ago, a couple years ago, but the church in Corinth is a mess, right? Like we laugh and we're like, oh, church is a mess, right? That church is a mess, all right? I mean, they're gathering and getting drunk on communion wine, okay? So it, it, it gets bad, but it, it hasn't gotten that bad, right? And in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, th- there's a man who is having an illicit affair with his mother-in-law. Which is bad now, 
You just can't imagine 2,000 years ago how bad that would be. And so that's the sort of context of 1 Corinthians 5. And then Paul reaches back into the Passover, into Exodus 12, and takes it and applies it to that situation. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, you're, you're boasting, right? This church isn't doing anything. They're just letting this happen. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right? Ye- yeast, it just permeates through a whole loaf. It contaminates a loaf. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, God's people, as they marched out of Egypt, they didn't have unleavened bread just because in case they were grumbling and hungry. It served that purpose, I'm certain. But the reason was, it was a reminder, a sign that they were not leavened. They are unleavened people. They are distinct. They are God's people. So act like it. That was their true identity. They were to be distinct as a forgiven people, marching towards God and his promises. Paul writes right after this, right? He, he then grounds this and he says, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Now, how do we celebrate the festival? Not with the old leaven of Egypt, that old leaven of malice and evil. No, 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 no. It's with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the, the, the Passover back then, and even communion now as we celebrate it today, it's not just a celebration of our freedom, though it is that. It functions like that. But it's secondarily a reminder of who we are and our identity. Did you notice that what Paul said? Paul says, do not live as unleavened as you are. In other words, you are this, so live like it. Not, you got to work your way to live like that. No, the identity has, because of Jesus, been laid on you. Now act like it. That's the point. So friends, even in the Passover, there's a reminder to us, a, a reminder to live in light of who we are. A distinct people. To, to not go back to malice and evil but to actually live as God's people in light of who God is, in light of his promises, in light of who he displays us to be, in light of his call upon our lives to live holy lives. Here's a reminder that we are to live as we truly are. We have been forgiven, so don't be shackled by sin. Live in light of that freedom. And I think it's also a reminder that we need to do this together, right? It's a reminder that together, this is not just an individual thing, that together, one of the purposes of the church is to help us do this, to remind ourselves in word and deed, in small groups and Bible studies, as we gather every Sunday, to remind us that we've not only been freed, but that we have a new identity, a heavenly identity. And we can call each other and encourage each other and admonish each other towards life that is in light of that identity. Well, finally, let's let's look at this last 
eight verses, what I think all of this text is driving to, this inclusive nature of the celebration. Verse 43, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in, no, in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and he would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be uh, one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So the preparation has been set. All the details. Israel obeys. They're freed. And now the invitation for next year's celebration go out, don't they? And the question is, who can come to the party, right? Who can celebrate? That, that's, what that, that's the question of those eight verses. Who is allowed to celebrate with God's people? And it's clear that this meal is only for God's people, right? It is only for God's people. And yet, did you notice that the emphasis isn't on who can't come? It's on how some people can come. Did you notice that? The, the, the emphasis, the, the, the spotlight isn't spotlighting all the people who are not allowed to come to the celebration. It's on how they can come to the celebration, how they can come to the party. And it was through a marker. It was through circumcision, which circumcision was many things, but one of the things it was, it was an outward sign that you were cutting off the old life and aligning yourself with God and his people. That's what circumcision was, right? Especially if you weren't Jewish, which this is saying, if you're not, this is how you get into this party, right? You cut off the old, metaphorically, I know it's funny. You you cut off the old life and you now symbolically join with God's people in newness of life. That was how people could enjoy this celebration. It was sort of a gracious means of entrance into God's people, God's house. But one thing I didn't mention in verse 38 in that next section is, sometimes when we read our Old Testament, we think, oh, it's just Israel, you know, it was so exclusive, so narrow, and thanks be to God that we live post-Jesus, which is true in one sense. But I didn't point out to you, look at verse 38. It says there's a mixed multitude that marched out of Egypt. Which means that it wasn't just Israel marching out, ethnic Israel. Egyptians are coming with them. Egyptians that said, I trust their God, their promises, and I want to be a part of that family. And I'm going to come with you. So even here we have a a provision for how the nations can come into the household of God to have a relationship with God. And they did it by cutting their old ties 
and throwing their hat in and aligning with God and his people. You see, God, far from being exclusive, he's bringing people and bringing the nations into his kingdom. Here's a glimmer of the blessing of the nations. But it's also changed, hasn't it? We don't do circumcision anymore. And yet it's as if in Christ, that, that, that little door that was slightly cracked for the nations to come, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he has kicked open the door, hasn't he? And now the nations can come. In light of Christ, that invitation it doesn't just, it isn't just a small invitation. It's not an ex, uh, in, uh, exclusive invitation. It is inclusive of all of the nations. It doesn't matter your background. If you grew up in church, didn't grow up in church, it doesn't matter what you did or what you wish you would have done. That call, that invitation that goes out because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the invitation goes out for all who want to believe in that sacrifice and then apply that sacrifice in faith to their lives. There's a sting to not be invited to anything, isn't there? The best of us can be jealous. Ah, but the call of the gospel, the call of Jesus Christ to come, that invitation is open to all. All who put their faith and trust in him, all who hear the call, all who walk through the door, all who want to celebrate with God's people. It comes. Let's pray. God, we are, well, we, we should be more grateful that in Christ, the call of the gospel has gone forth. We just think about how, how far the story of Jesus has migrated throughout the world. We pray, Lord, that it would continue to do so. We pray, Lord, that we would have faith to believe in your promises. We pray that we would ha- be, be people who, who understand our identity in Christ, our identity as the family of God to such an extent that that would then motivate and fuel us and encourage us to live in light of that true reality. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.